The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to take a look at what it's like living in Clown World. The trickster zeitgeist. Have you had a feeling as of late that we live in Clown World? Have you seen the memes relating to that idea? The fact that we live in Clown World. Have you heard people refer to it as Clown World? Well, I assure you, folks, they're not far from the mark. Because we have been living in Clown World. And I could tell you precisely when Clown World actually launched as a, a very real thing here. It's an archetype that's being used and employed by the social controllers of this world. By the ones pulling the strings at the top of the power structure. These dark occultists who run things. And they are laughing at you and mocking you with this trickster zeitgeist that they have effectuated in the modern age now. So tonight we're going to explore that topic and we're going to put make uh, try to make a little sense out of what's happened in the world over the course of the past several years. And we'll see as we explore this that this goes much deeper than just the idea of say clowns in a circus and all the very silly things that are associated with the clown world meme because this is a very real meme okay this is the alchemical meme put into full effect here in the times we're living in and this has been done on a very grand scale and we're living in an era where the people in charge are fools not only fools, but they're incompetent. They're jesters, they're tricksters. The trickster archetype, as it were. The zeitgeist of the trickster, the zeitgeist of the clown. And we'll explore this avenue of thought tonight as we read into a book here that actually came from Yale University Library. A 1956 book written by Mr. Paul Radin called The Trickster, A Study in American Indian Mythology. And we're going to read a portion of this tonight because this has commentaries and contributions from Carl Karenyi and Carl G. Young. And we're going to read the portion of the book here by Carl Young. And this part's called On the Psychology of the Trickster Figure. And we'll see as we explore into this that we've talked about some of these things in past episodes here. We've taken notice to some of these things. We've pointed them out ad nauseum. And when I tell you we're living in clown world, I'm not kidding. We truly are. This has been inaugurated in our world, in our Western culture here. And it's something that's being held up. And there's a very real spiritual connotation behind all of it. There's a very real energy behind this an archetype, if you will, that affects the human mind on many levels. And as we delve into the works here of Carl Jung, we'll see exactly what we're talking about. Because you might be surprised to find out 
that Carl Jung is talking about, well, some very strange occultic things that tie back to older times. So, that being the case, we could rest assured that uh, these dark occultists who run things in this world very much have a firm grasp of these ideas as well, and have most likely purposely put this archetype into play in this age, created this modern clown world zeitgeist that we currently have. And we'll see, as we get through the reading here, just the corresponding evidence that lays this all down for your modern mind here. So let's get right into it without further ado. On the psychology of the trickster figure, it is no light task for me to write about the figure of the trickster in American Indian mythology within the confined space of a commentary. When I first came across Adolf Bandelier's classic on this subject, The Delight Makers, many years ago, I was struck by the European analogy of the carnival in the medieval church, with its reversal of the hierarchic order, which is still continued in the carnivals held by student societies today. Something of this contradictoriness also inheres in the medieval description of the devil as Simia Dei, the ape of God, and in his characterization in folklore as the simpleton who is fooled or cheated. A curious combination of typical trickster motifs can be found in the alchemical figure of Mercurius. For instance, his fondness for sly jokes and malicious pranks, his powers as a shapeshifter, his dual nature, half-animal, half-divine, his exposure to all kinds of tortures, and last but not least, his approximation to the figure of a savior. These qualities make Mercurius seem like a demonic being resurrected from primitive times, older even than the Greek Hermes. His rogueries relate him in some measure to various figures met with in folklore and universally known in fairy tales. Tom Thumb, Stupid Hans, or the buffoon-like Hans Wurst, who is an altogether negative hero and yet manages to achieve, though, or through his stupidity, what others fail to accomplish with their best efforts. In Grimm's fairy tale, the spirit Mercurius lets himself be outwitted by a peasant lad and then has to buy his freedom with the precious gift of healing. And I'm going to pause for a second right there, folks. So pointing out early on here, Carl Jung noticed that the European analogy of the carnival in the medieval church, with its reversal of the hierarchic order, was a perfect representation of this trickster figure or clown motif. He's referring, of course, to a subject we've covered here on past broadcasts, the Feast of Fools. Also, the Feast of Epiphany, which the Feast of Fools was celebrated on the date of Epiphany every year. So he noticed something that we've seen here and we've discussed already on several occasions now, and I can't stress the importance of this enough. Because this is something that is a hugely important event that will shape our future here. And has actually 
inaugurated us into the clown world motif, so to say, here. But let's continue reading what Young has to say, and we'll pontificate more on that in a little while here. Since all mythical figures correspond to inner psychic experiences and originally sprang from them, it is not surprising to find certain phenomena in the field of parapsychology which remind us of the trickster. These are the phenomena connected with poltergeists, and they occur all, at all times and places in the ambiance of pre-adolescent children. The malicious tricks played by the poltergeist are as well known as the low level of his intelligence and the fatuity of his communications. Ability to change his shape seems almost to be one of his characteristics, as there are not a few reports of his appearance in animal form. Since he has on occasion described himself as a soul in hell, the motif of subjective suffering would seem not to be lacking either. His universality is coextensive, so to speak, with that of shamanism, to which, as we know, the whole phenomenology of spiritualism belongs. There is something of the trickster in the character of the shaman and medicine man, for he too often plays malicious jokes on people, only to fall victim in his turn to the vengeance of those whom he has injured. For this reason, his profession sometimes puts him in peril of his life. Besides that, the shamanistic techniques in themselves often cause the medicine man a good deal of discomfort, if not actual pain. At all events, the making of a medicine man involves, in many parts of the world, so much agony of body and soul that permanent psychic injuries may result. His approximation to the Savior is an obvious consequence of this in confirmation of the mythological truth that the wounded wounder is the agent of healing and that the sufferer takes away suffering. Gonna pause there for a moment, folks. So think about what Jung just said there about this archetype, you see, and relate it to some things that we know and we've seen. This whole idea of Mercury, or Hermes, being the trickster, also known by other appellations too, Prometheus. Same figure described in different ways, Loki in the Norse mythology, the trickster. Let's continue reading. These mythological features extend even to the highest regions of man's spiritual development. If we consider, for example, the demonic features exhibited by Yahweh in the Old Testament, we shall find in them not a few reminders of the unpredictable behavior of the trickster, of his pointless orgies of destruction and his self-appointed sufferings, together with the same gradual development into a savior and his simultaneous humanization. It is just this transformation of the meaningless into the meaningful that reveals the trickster's compensatory relation to the saint, which in the early Middle Ages led to some strange ecclesiastical customs based on memories of the ancient Saturnalia. Mostly, they were celebrated on the days immediately following the birth of Christ, that is, in the new year, with singing and dancing, and I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. In the new year. He's most definitely referring to the Feast of Fools, as it were. He's referring to the date that we now know in infamy here. January 6, 2021, is when Clown World was thrust upon us in Fool here. 
this archetype leveraged against us, invoking the Feast of Fools, this old call back to Saturnalia, Saturnalian celebrations. And he goes into more detail as we go a little further here, but we could also see he's talking about the idea of the days immediately following the birth of Christ, and this was the new year back in the medieval times. And what is also heavily being portrayed in the news over the course of the past several days now, about the past week, week and a half, well, they're talking about the Lunar New Year, the Chinese New Year, the year of the rabbit, right? So we see all of these things being invoked here, and it all has to do with this trickster archetype, because the rabbit is also seen as a trickster, isn't he? He's clever, and he likes to play tricks upon his enemies, or even his friends. Look at, for example, the cartoon character Bugs Bunny. What is he known for? Well, he's got a quick wit, and he does play tricks. He's got this trickster archetype to him as well. So there's an invocation going on of this trickster archetype en masse here, relating to the new year and the celebration of the Feast of Epiphany back on January 6th, 2021, with the callback to this Feast of Fools that we've discussed on past programs here. If you haven't listened to those, please go back and take a listen, because this is important, and the more that I've been exploring this topic, the more of this kind of stuff I'm finding. And apparently it's not just me that's noticing this archetype here, because Carl Jung pointed out this archetype as being hugely important here. Somebody's leveraging this archetype, folks. Somebody at the top of the power structure that's looking to achieve certain goals. They've set this thing in motion. They've invoked this new zeitgeist into the modern day here. Clown World is in full swing. It started January 6, 2021. See? So this was something hugely important, but not for the reasons that are presented to you in media. This was obviously a mockery, this whole situation. A mockery, as we'll see here. But let's continue on with the reading here and see what else Carl Jung has to say about this. The dances were originally harmless tripudia of the priests, the lower clergy, children, and subdeacons, and they took place in the church. An episcopus purerum, the children's, a children's bishop, was elected and dressed in pontifical robes. Amid uproarious rejoicings, he paid an official visit to the palace of the archbishop and distributed the episcopal blessing from one of the windows. The same thing happened at the tripudium hypodianonorum, and at the dances for other priestly grades. By the end of the 12th century of the subdeacon's dance had already degenerated into a festum stulorum, a fool's feast. A report from the year 1198 says that the feast of circumcision in Notre Dame, Paris, so many abominations and shameful deeds were committed that the holy place was desecrated not only by smutty jokes, but even by the shedding of blood. In vain did Pope Innocent III inveigh against the jests and madness that make the clergy a mockery and the shameless frenzy of their play-acting. Nearly 300 years later, 
the 12th of March, 1444, a letter from the theological faculty of Paris to all the French bishops was still fulminating against these festivals, at which even the priests and clerics elected an archbishop or a bishop or a pope, and named him the Fool's Pope, Fatorum Papam. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. They elected a Fool's Pope. Who was elected in 2020 and was inaugurated in January of 2021, just weeks or days even after this January 6th, 2021 Feast of Fools? Well, the fool himself. They put in a fool's pope. In the position of leadership. Do you think Joe Biden's up there by accident? Do you, do you really think that they they didn't put in this bumbling idiot into this position of power on purpose to make a mockery of us? Think about that. They, they literally put a senile old man in the most powerful office in all the world. He literally, I mean, you could see how sad it is. He's obviously got something going on. Alzheimer's, dementia, something of the sort. They put this bumbling fool in charge in the most prestigious office in the world. They elected him the fool's pope. They gave the foolish American people their just dues here. They're making a mockery of us, folks. That's what's been going on with this whole January 6th debacle. It's an occult ritual. An occult ritual invoking the trickster archetype and putting in place the leadership here. The fools. The Feast of Fools are in charge. The fools are in charge. And do you see the state of the world right now? They put the fools in charge for, well, some nefarious reasons. Because they are seeking to tear down the old order so that they could make order out of the chaos that there is. Are you beginning to understand this yet? Have you been following this program and others like it for long enough to understand what's being invoked here and what's being done? Are you beginning to see all these ties back to these secret society groups and all of the occult ritual nonsense that they perform all the time? in public view, to make a mockery of people. That's exactly what's been done here. They're mocking us, folks. They put the clowns in charge of the circus. The entire thing. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Let's continue reading and see what else Young has to say about the old Feast of Fools and the representation of this trickster archetype therein. In the very midst of divine service, masqueraders with grotesque faces disguised as women, lions, and mummers performed their dances, sang indecent songs in the choir, ate their greasy food from a corner of the altar near the priest celebrating mass, got out their games of dice, burned a stinking incense made of old shoe leather, and ran and hopped about all over the church. It is not surprising that this veritable witch's Sabbath was uncommonly popular and that it required considerable time and effort to free the church from this pagan heritage. 
In certain localities, even the priests seem to have adhered to the Libertas Decembrica, as the Fool's Holiday was called, in spite, or perhaps because, of the fact that the older level of consciousness could let itself rip on this holiday occasion with all the wildness, wantonness, and irresponsibility of paganism. These ceremonies, which still reveal the spirit of the trickster in his original form, seem to have died out by the beginning of the 16th century. At any rate, the various conciliar decrees issued from 1581 to 1585 forbade only the festum purorum and the election of an episcopus purorum, or the fool's pope, folks. Finally, we must also mention in this connection the festum Asinarium, which, so far as I know, was celebrated mainly in France. Although considered a harmless festival in the memory of Mary's flight into Egypt, it was celebrated in a somewhat curious manner which might easily have given rise to misunderstandings. In Beauvais, the ass procession went right into the church. At the conclusion of each part, and it gives the three parts here, the the, uh, Latin names for them, of the high mass that followed, the whole congregation brayed, that is, they all went ee-ah like a donkey. A codex dating apparently from the 11th century says, quote, At the end of the mass, instead of the words ite missa ist, the priest shall bray three times, and instead of the words dio gratius, the congregation shall answer ee-ah three times. So, it gives a little poem here or a hymn that was recited at this festival. And it's all, it looks like it's in either Latin, yeah, or French here. Actually, I think this is French that it's given in. But uh, the hymn had nine verses, and it gives out all the verses and stuff here. I'm not going to read them because I'm terrible at reading some of these foreign languages, and I don't want to butcher it, and I don't have the translation of the words here. But let's see what else Young says about this. Du Kang says that the more ridiculous this rite seemed, the greater the enthusiasm with which it was celebrated. In other places, the ass was decked with a golden canopy whose corners were held by distinguished cannons. The others present had to don suitably festive garments as at Christmas. Since there were certain tendencies to bring the ass into symbolic relationship with Christ... And since from ancient times the god of the Jews was vulgarly conceived to be an ass, a prejudice which extended to Christ himself, as is shown by the mock crucifixion scribbled on the wall of the imperial cadet school on the Palatine, the danger of theriomorphism lay uncomfortably close. Even the bishops could do nothing to stamp out this custom, until finally it had to be suppressed by the Octoritus Supremi Senatus. The suspicion of blasphemy becomes quite open in Nietzsche's Ass Festival, which is a deliberately blasphemous parody of the Mass. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So the Feast of the Ass was also a big celebration back in those medieval times when they celebrated this Feast of Fools. And these two ceremonies got combined into the same long festivity here. They celebrated them back to back right around the new year and around the Feast of Epiphany. And all of this in the modern era, starting back in the late 1500s, early 1600s, 
all kind of all of these different celebrations got lumped together under the auspices of the Feast of Epiphany. So they all got rolled together into Epiphany, and this Feast of Fools and the Feast of Asses ceased to be celebrated as it was only celebrated as the Feast of Epiphany, as was the occasion here. And all these other things came about around that, and they hearkened back to Saturnalian festivities and celebrations, going back to some of the traditions of the ancient mystery schools, of the Bacchic mysteries, uh, the Eleusinian mysteries, all of these different mysteries, they all had some type of celebration of this sort. And this is what this hearkened back to. It could be traced back to the Saturnalia celebrations, all of it. And this is what they did, and it was a mockery of what the Feast of Epiphany was all about, of, of what Christ was all about. It was a mockery of the church was a mockery of the state, the church and the state. It was a mockery of the power structure. So this was a very popular thing, and it, it gave people an excuse to go out and do debaucherous things. And the people loved it, and even the priestcraft got involved with it at one point. It got so bad that the whole thing was outlawed back in, I think it was the late 1500s or early 1600s as the history goes so the feast of fools disappeared off the world stage for some time now but guess what it was brought back january 6th 2021 to reignite the idea of clown world and here we are deeply entrenched in clown world the archetype is here this is more than an archetype now. It's become a new zeitgeist for our era. The spirit of the time, if you're not familiar with the term zeitgeist. So we are living in clown world. They actually took the worst possible people that they could find and put them in charge as a mockery to the people. And we see what's gone on here, haven't we? Look at the state of the world. We're teetering on the brink of World War Three, ostensibly here. They moved the, the, uh, the doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight, right? On the brink of World War III, inflation beyond belief, the cost of everything going up, and they keep doubling down on their nonsensical things they're doing, spending all kinds of money that they're printing out of thin air and claiming, well, no, that's not going to, uh, you know, increase the inflation or anything. Y yes, it will. You're not going to get blood from a stone. That's not how this works. But that's ostensibly what's going on here. So you see, they put in place the worst possible people for steering world events. And now we see the clown show that is Davos, just took place a couple weeks ago. The meeting at Davos where the World Economic Forum and all of these uh, alleged philanthropic organizations, they get together their best and brightest people to plan the future for all of us. You know, all these unelected officials that nobody ever consented to having represent them, deciding how we should proceed together as a world. And they're meeting, and they're coming up with all of these plans and implementing them. And now they're putting crickets... In the European food supply, they're starting to use bug additives in the food. I'm not kidding. This was all part of the plan of the World Economic Forum. You will eat the bugs. Klaus Schwab. This is also part of Clown World, right? Think about that. 
They're telling us that this is going to save the planet. Eating bugs will make the weather better, right? Eating bugs will make the weather better, Klaus Schwab told me. Uh, so we have all of this stuff going on as well. It's a total clown show, folks. It really is. And this is why they've invoked this archetype to bring about a stupor upon the people of the world, to mock the people of the world, and to give them what, in their view, they think the people of the world deserve. And this will cause the ultimate collapse that they need, the economic collapse, to bring up the whole digital currency system and put everything into this central database that they want. And this is where we're heading. And this is exactly what they, they planned to happen. But they needed either a whole lot of incompetence or a whole lot of really poor planning to do this. So look at what they put in charge. So now we're living through the results of all this blatantly leftist lunatic nonsense that's been going on in our society, being pushed and promoted this anything-goes mentality where, you know, everything is about moral relativism and there's inclusivity and diversity to the extreme with everything. And anything that anybody does is okay. It's how they identify. You dare not question who they are or what they're about, and you dare not criticize them for it. And you better make sure you use the right pronouns. Could you think of a better term for this state of being than clown world, folks? Because that's where we're at. And this is what's been done. And this is all leveraging off of this archetype, this trickster archetype that Jung is speaking about here. But let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here what Jung had to say. These medieval customs demonstrate the role of the trickster to perfection. And when they vanished from the precincts of the church, they appeared again on the profane level of Italian theatricals as those comic types who often adorned with enormous ithophallic emblems entertained the far from prudish public with ribaldries in true Rebellion style. Calot's engravings preserved these classical figures for posterity. The Pulcinellas, Cucaragnas, Chico's Garas, and the like. In picaresque tales, in carnivals and revels, in sacred and magical rites, in man's religious fears and exaltations, this phantom of tr the trickster haunts the mythology of all ages, sometimes in quite unmistakable form, sometimes in strangely modulated guise. He is obviously a psychologem, an archetypal psychic structure of extreme antiquity. In his clearest manifestations, he is a faithful copy of an absolutely undifferentiated human consciousness corresponding to a psyche that has hardly left the animal level. That is how the trickster figure originated. Or, sorry, that this is how the trickster figure originated can hardly be contested if we look at it from the causal and historical angle. In psychology, as in biology, we cannot afford to overlook or underestimate this question of origins, although the answer usually tells us nothing about the functional meaning. For this reason, biology should never forget the question of purpose, for only by answering that can we get to the, at the meaning of a phenomenon. Even in pathology, 
where we are concerned with lesions, which have no meaning in themselves, the exclusively causal approach proves to be inadequate since there are a number of pathological phenomena which only give up their meaning when we inquire into their purpose. And where we are concerned with the normal phenomena of life, this question of purpose takes undisputed precedence. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, and just point out that Jung is equating this archetype, this trickster archetype, back through this historical angle, and he says, it's an undifferentiated human consciousness corresponding to a psyche that has hardly left the animal level. Now, this has been referred to in occultic circles for a long time as the idea of the doppelganger, or the human double, as explored by the works of Rudolf Steiner and others. This is the human double. This is the doppelganger. This is the aramonic double, folks. The animal nature in man coming in full fruition here, in full force. Clown world. The clown, the trickster archetype, represents the doppelganger. You see? The human double, the human doppelganger. The aramonic double, that entity which is grossly tied to the physical manifestation of this world, grossly tied to the animalistic nature of man, the hyper-materialist paradigm part of mankind, thinking in that way, in these strictly physical terms. That's what's being leveraged here, once again. But let's continue reading what Jung has to say about this. When, therefore, a primitive or barbarous consciousness forms a picture of itself on a much earlier level of development and continues to do so for hundreds or even thousands of years, under, undeterred by the contamination of its archaic qualities with differentiated, highly developed mental products, then the causal explanation is that the older the archaic qualities are, the more conservative and pertinacious is their behavior. One simply cannot shake off the memory image of things as they were and drags it along like a senseless appendage. This explanation, which is fairly enough to satisfy the rationalistic requirements of our age, would certainly not meet with approval of the Winnebago tribe, the nearest possessors of the trickster cycle. For them, the myth is not in any sense a remnant. It is far too amusing for that, and an object of undivided enjoyment. For them, it still functions, provided that they have not been spoiled by civilization. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So his comparison here of this trickster archetype being like an unusable, senseless appendage that one drags along with oneself, this is a perfect allegorical description of the idea of the doppelganger or human double, the aramonic double. You see, we, we all carry this with us. This trickster archetype is inherent in our psyches. It's there on a psychological level, on a physical level as well. But now he's comparing it to the American Indian tribe, the Winnebago's, and what their view of the trickster archetype is because they had some representations of it that were positive. 
And that's not to say all the attributes of this trickster archetype are negative, because they're not. There are some positive attributes associated with it as well. So it's a necessary kind of thing. But it's the invoking of this archetype and the leveraging on it that I think is the real thing going on here in this world. Whereas we've been drug kicking and screaming directly into clown world now. And now we have to deal with the manifestation of this trickster archetype in the world around us in this way, you see. But let's go ahead and continue reading here. So Young just said that uh, the Winnebagos, they find this far too amusing an object of undivided enjoyment. For them, it still functions, provided that it, they have not been spoiled by civilization. For them, there is no earthly reason to theorize about the meaning and purpose of myths, just as the Christmas tree seems no problem to all the naive Europeans. For the thoughtful observer, however, both trickster and Christmas tree afford reason enough for reflection. Naturally, it depends very much on the mentality of the observer, what he thinks about these things. Considering the crude primitivity of the trickster cycle, it would not be surprising if one saw in this myth simply the reflection of an earlier rudimentary stage of consciousness, which is what the trickster obviously seems to be. And I'm going to pause again for a moment here, folks. So, something that's a leftover of the animal nature within man is what he's saying here, which is a poor, perfect correspondence to the idea of the human double, the doppelganger, the aramonic double, as discussed by Rudolf Steiner, within man. So you see, a lot of different things can be tied to this idea, this trickster. Let's continue on. The only question that would need answering is whether such personified reflections exist at all in empirical psychology. As a matter of fact, they do, and these experiences of split or double personality actually form the core of the earliest psychopathological investigations. The peculiar thing about these dissociations is that the split-off personality is not just a random one, but stands in a complementary or compensatory relationship to the ego personality. It is a personification of traits of character which are sometimes worse and sometimes better than those the ego personality possesses. A collective personification like the trickster is the product of a totality of individuals and is welcomed by the individual as something known to him, which would not be the case if it were just an individual outgrowth. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So what Jung is saying here is this is something archetypal that all people can relate to. Because if it was just something that uh, showed up in, say, one individual, well, that would be considered just one particular thing. This wouldn't be accepted or acknowledged as an actual facet of our culture and our society. A fact of life, you see. This trickster idea. It wouldn't crop up as a mythology if it was only one isolated incident or two isolated incidents within people. Let's continue on though. Now, if the myth were nothing but a historical remnant, one would have to ask 
why it has not long since vanished into the great rubbish heap of the past, and why it continues to make its influence felt on the highest level of civilization, even where, on account of his stupidity and grotesque scurrility, the trickster no longer plays the role of a delight maker. In many cultures, his figure seems like an old riverbed in which the water still flows. One can see this best of all from the fact that the trickster motif does not crop up only in its original form, but appears just as naively and authentically in the unsuspecting modern man. Whenever, in fact, he feels himself at the mercy of annoying accidents, which thwart his will and his actions with apparently malicious intent. He then speaks of hoodoos and jinxes, or of the mischievousness of the object, here, the trickster is represented by counter-tendencies in the unconscious, and in certain cases by a sort of second personality of a puerile and inferior character, not unlike the personalities who announce themselves at spiritualistic seances and call, cause all those ineffably childish phenomena so typical of poltergeists. I have, I think, found a suitable designation for this character component, which I called it the shadow. On the civilized level, it is treated as a personal gaffe, slip, faux pas, etc., which are then chalked up as defects of the conscious personality. We are no longer aware that in carnival customs and the like, there are remnants of a collective shadow figure which prove that the personal shadow is in part descended from a numinous collective figure. This collective figure gradually breaks up under the impact of civilization, leaving traces in folklore which are difficult to recognize, but the main part of him gets pers personalized and is made an object of personal responsibility. And I'm going to pause here, folks. Did you ever wonder why clowns are so creepy and scary? Oh, it's because of this attachment of this shadow archetype to it as well. So we have the trickster which, when taken to a more malicious end, becomes a type of a shadow figure. You see, the clown, the evil clown, as it were. Not just the regular clown, but uh, this figure, the personal shadow, the remnants of the collective shadow figure, as Jung refers to it here. This is something deep in the human psyche. It is an archetypal thing. And I think it does allude to this more occultic idea of the doppelganger, as I have referred to here earlier. I'm pretty sure that's what Jung is trying to describe here in no uncertain terms. Remember, Carl Jung, aside from being one of the founders of our modern-day psychology, was also an alchemist. And he understood occult philosophy, and that's where he based most of his scientific psychological teachings from. He understood and brought these things into the modern era, gave them new, more scientific-sounding names, and presented them in the literature of psychology. So, we do have the idea of the clown at play here, also the shadow archetype, and that's why clowns have this creepy kind of aura to them that some people become very uncomfortable with, because it has this shadow archetype attached to it as well as the trickster. Because the trickster can be a playful figure, or it can be a very malicious or dark figure. You see, it's got this dichotomous 
attachment to it, this dichotomous side to it. And Jung understood this, and he presented this in the psychological literature in this way. So let's continue reading here and see what else we can garner from this. Raiden's trickster cycle preserves the shadow in its pristine mythological form, and thus points back to very much earlier stage of consciousness, which existed before the birth of the myth, when the Indian was still groping about in a similar mental darkness. Only when his consciousness reached a higher level could he detach the earlier state from himself and objectify it, that is to say, anything about it. So long as his consciousness was itself trickster-like, such a confrontation could obviously not take place. It was possible only when the attainment of a newer and higher level of consciousness enabled him to look back on a lower and inferior state. And I'm going to go ahead and pause for a second here, folks, and just point out, this is Carl Jung speaking in the terms of being a modern-day psychologist, speaking in the modern scientific parlance here, and the way he's speaking about these people attaining a higher level of consciousness, does he not sound exactly like an occultist? And I'll tell you why. Because he is. And this is where many of our sciences come from. If you were to tell somebody this in the context of speaking in occult language, they would think you were totally nuts. They would think that you are totally off your rocker, that it's all silly and nonsensical. But because it's become coming from one of the most recognized and influential people in the modern science of psychology, this they respect, you see. But they have no respect if it comes from a place of somebody who they see as being silly with their nonsensical occultic things that they, they talk about. Ooh, magic! You know, you, you see how... They've tried to make these things look silly in the modern era. They try to dismiss this stuff. But here it is, straight out of the horse's mouth here. Young was pointing this out. It's, he talks in the same way that the secret societies do about higher consciousness, you see. Enlightenment. He could replace higher consciousness with the term illumination or enlightenment and get the same kind of message out of the whole thing. But anyway, just wanted to point that out. But let's continue reading. It was only to be expected that a good deal of mockery and contempt should mingle with this retrospect, thus casting an even thicker pall over man's memories of the past, which were pretty unedifying anyway. This phenomenon must have repeated itself innumerable times in the history of his mental development. The sovereign contempt with which our modern age looks back on the taste and intelligence of earlier centuries is a classic example of this, and there is an unmistakable allusion to the same phenomenon in the New Testament where we are told in Acts 17.30 that God looked down from above on the, the times of ignorance or unconsciousness. This attitude contrasts strangely with the still commoner and more striking idealization of the past, which is praised not merely as the good old days, but as the golden age, and not just by uneducated and superstitious people, but by all those millions of theosophical enthusiasts who resolutely believe in the former existence and lofty civilization of Atlantis. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This is coming from Carl Jung, one of the most preeminent psychologists, fathers of modern psychology, that there is. 
somebody highly regarded in the scientific realm, and he's speaking about theosophists, Atlantis, the Golden Age, all of these archetypal things that have been presented and handed down through the secret society groups and the mystery schools from time immemorial. He's speaking on this, and he's putting this into the scientific parlance of the modern era, and he's highly respected and regarded, and is seen to be a very serious scientific mind. But yet, he was a practicing occultist and alchemist, really understood many of these things, brought them forward, and explained them in a way that the modern mind could wrap their brain around. So, with that being the case, we see the, the precepts of a lot of our modern sciences are based on the old occult sciences, or natural sciences, as it were. And he's pointing out these different ideas here. Now, if somebody were to say, say this in, you know, the context of an everyday conversation, and not knowing where this is from, people would think you were some kind of a loony, or uh, some kind of a, uh, a strange person, or something like that, an eccentric uh, that believed all kinds of fanciful nonsense. But coming from Carl Jung, well, they take it serious, don't they? So, keep that in mind. Many of the people in the modern era who have put forward some of these new sciences are just putting forward some of the old sciences in a new modern lingo that the scientific establishment of the day will latch on to and accept as a rudimentary thing. Nothing's new under the sun, everyone. Let's keep that in mind. So, we see him here speaking of these things, and we have to understand, he absolutely understands the secret doctrine, and he's promoting the secret doctrine through the modern-day psychology here, and acting upon it, because there are some core truths and tenets behind it, as much as there is lies and misconceptions about it as well, and inversions that have been put in play with it all. But Jung understood some very basic things about human nature and put them into words, in a way, in the modern era, that most people could actually resonate with. So that's what's been done here. Anyone who belongs to a sphere of culture that seeks the perfect state somewhere in the past must feel very queerly indeed when confronted by the figure of the trickster he is a forerunner of the Savior, and like him, God, man, and animal at once. He is both subhuman and superhuman, a bestial and divine being whose chief and most alarming characteristic is his unconsciousness. Because of it, he is deserted by his evidently human companions, which seems to indicate that he has fallen below their level of consciousness. He is so unconscious of himself that his body is not a unity, and his two hands fight each other. He takes his anus off and entrusts it with a special task. Even his sex is optional despite its phallic qualities. He can turn himself into a woman and bear children. From his penis he makes all kinds of useful plants. This is a reference to his original nature as a creator, for the world is made from the body of a god. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Does this sound like science? 
to you? Does this sound like a modern scientist to you? No. As I've stated before, Jung was very much an occultist. And he's expressing that right here, right now. Stating the things that are taught within the secret society groups. This same kind of thing, you see. And he's speaking about this trickster archetype, how it can alter itself. It's very mutable. It changes into what it reflects as. So let's go ahead and continue reading. On the other hand, he is in many respects stupider than the animals and gets it into gets into one ridiculous scrape after another. Although he is not really evil, he does the most atrocious things from sheer unconsciousness and unrelatedness. His imprisonment in animal unconsciousness is suggested by the episode where he gets his head caught inside the skull of an elk, and the next episode shows how he overcomes this condition by imprisoning the head of a hawk inside his own rectum. True, he sinks back into the former condition immediately afterwards, but falling under the ice and is out by falling under the ice and is outwitted time after time by the animals, but in the end he succeeds in tricking the cunning coyote, and this brings back to him his savior nature. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So apparently he's referring back to some of the Indian Winnebago stories about the trickster in this regard. So let's continue on. The trickster is a primitive cosmic being of divine animal nature, on the one hand superior to man because of his superhuman qualities, and on the other hand inferior to him because of his unreason and unconsciousness. He is no match for the animals either because of his extraordinary clumsiness and lack of instinct. These defects are the marks of his human nature, which is not so well adapted to the environment as the animals, but instead has prospects of a much higher development of consciousness based on a considerable eagerness to learn, as is dully emphasized in the myth. What the repeated telling of the myth signifies is the therapeutic anamnesis of contents, which, for reasons still to be discussed, should never be forgotten for long. If they were nothing but the remains of an inferior state, it would be understandable if man turned his attention away from them, feeling that their reappearance was a nuisance. This is evidently by no means the case, since the trickster has been a source of amusement right down to civilized times, where he can still be recognized in the carnival figures of Pulsinella and the Clown. Here we have an important reason for his still continuing to function, but it is not the only one, and certainly not the reason why this reflection of an extremely primitive state of consciousness solidified into a mythological personage. Mere vestiges of an early state that is dying out usually lose their energy at an increasing rate, otherwise they would never disappear. The last thing we would expect is that they would have the strength to solidify into a mythological figure with its own cycle of legends, unless, of course, they received energy from outside, in this case, from a higher level of consciousness, or from resources in the unconscious, which are not yet exhausted. 
to take a legitimate parallel from the psychology of the individual, namely the appearance of an impressive shadow figure antagonistically confronting a personal consciousness, this figure does not appear merely because it still exists in the individual, but because it rests on a dynamism whose existence can only be explained in terms of his actual situation. For instance, because the shadow is so disagreeable to his ego consciousness that it has to be repressed into the unconscious. This explanation does not quite meet the case here, because the trickster obviously represents a vanishing level of consciousness which increasingly lacks the power to take shape and assert itself. Furthermore, repression would prevent it from vanishing, because repressed contents are the very ones that have the best chance of survival, as we know from experience, that nothing is corrected in the unconscious. Lastly, the story of the trickster is not in the least disagreeable to the Winnebago consciousness, or incompatible with it, but on the contrary, pleasurable and therefore not conducive to repression. It looks, therefore, as if the myth were actively sustained and fostered by consciousness. This may well be so, since that is the best and most successful method of keeping the shadow figure conscious and subjecting it to conscious criticism. Although this criticism has at first more the character of a positive evaluation, we may expect that the progressive development of consciousness, the cruder aspects of the myth, will gradually fall away even if the danger of its rapid disappearance under the stress of white civilization did not exist. We have often seen how certain customs, originally cruel or obscene, became mere vestiges in the course of time. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. So he's saying that many of these archetypal things survive within our unconscious mind because we suppress them, you see. We suppress these ideas... So, that being the case, we need to understand that if we keep these things suppressed or repressed in a certain way, these ideas, they are inherently attached to us. This could be said also of the idea of the doppelganger, you see. It's the same kind of thing. If you look at it as an allegorical representation of things, or if you take it as a serious spiritual type of uh, an entity attachment or something like that. It's irrelevant how you view it, you see, because it's just a matter of how the conscious and unconscious mind interact with one another. It's something inherent in the human condition. So whether it's just an allegorical reference here, or if it's an actual spiritual thing attached to a person, that's open for, you know, debate, between people, but it is a real psychological thing that goes on in the human being, not just in the individual, but in the consciousness of the group as well, of society as well. That's why we have mass psychology, and mass psychology differs from individual psychology in many ways, and I think Jung actually alluded to that a little bit here by comparing the shadow archetype here. That's an individualized type archetype, but the trickster archetype is like a, a slightly different one because it manifests throughout all human consciousness. You see, it, it affects the whole group, and the group recognizes this archetype in many ways. So we have this trickster, we have the shadow, <laughs> representing the darker side of the trickster archetype, and we have these different ideas 
of how it could relate to this attachment that uh, Steiner refers to as the Aramonic Double, that uh, many of the occultists refer to as the Doppleganger, or Human Double. And within the secret society groups, when you get to the high enough levels, they actually classify this as the animal nature, the physical animal nature. And this is where their teachings align with this kind of thinking, you see. They think that in order to become an elevated human being, you have to separate yourself from your animal nature and conquer your animal nature. And this is represented by many symbols through the secret society groups and in society as a whole. The Sphinx is a symbol of this idea of separating the human element or the more divine human element from the animalistic element, element, the physical from the spiritual, the sphinx, this combination here, referring back. And this could be a representation of this same type of archetype, you see. So the trickster is something inherent that we have throughout all of human psychology, throughout all of human experience. We have this type of force, so to say, here, because it, it transcends just your your mind, your conscious mind, your unconscious mind. It transcends that, you see. It's kind of got an energetic type principle of all its own within this place, this whole trickster archetype. And that's the, the whole nature of the archetype in and of itself, different archetypes. They have energetic signatures that affect human consciousness, but they exist outside of human consciousness as well as throughout it, you see. And that is wherein lies the mystery of how this stuff works. But it's a recognized thing here. It's just a matter of what do you call it. The occultists would call it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time. Or they would call it, uh, you know, this, this type of entity or spirit, you see. Uh, they would refer to it maybe as some type of an elemental type force or energetic principle. In science, they call it now the the archetype, you see. This is what Jung named it in the modern era. He named it the archetype, and we all have a pretty good understanding now of what the archetype is. It resonates with all people because it's something that's inherently experiential by all people. It's ingrained in them just automatically. It's intrinsic to them. They understand when they recognize this symbol, when they see this symbol, their unconscious mind recognizes this energetic principle. You see, that's what the archetype is. So, you know, they, the scientists would call this genetic memory, epigenetic memory, that kind of thing. Occultists would call it a, a facet of the Akashic Record or ancestral memory or some such thing, as they would call it, uh, say, with the, the medicine man or the shamanistic type cultures. They all recognize it. They just call it different things. It's just a matter of what do you name it. There's no denying its existence. It's definitely something that's there. But you can't quite pinpoint exactly what it is or how to describe it. So Jung came up with the term archetype. And this is one specific type of archetype, one that transcends all of time and culture, this trickster archetype. And we all kind of have an idea as to what this is about to a certain degree, because it is archetypal. So we do our best. I, I try my best to use language here that everybody could understand to try to convey these ideas 
But it's difficult at times. But anyway, let's go ahead. I want to continue reading here and see what else Young has to say because we're not quite done here yet. The process of neutralization, as the history of the trickster motif shows, lasts a very long time, so that one can still find traces of it even at a high level of civilization. Its longevity could also be explained by the strength and vitality of the state of consciousness described in the myth, and by the secret attraction and fascination this has for the conscious mind. Although purely causal... Hypotheses in the biological sphere are not, as a rule, very satisfactory. Due weight must nevertheless be given to the fact that, in the case of the trickster, a higher level of consciousness has covered up a lower one, and that the latter was already in retreat. His recollection, however, is mainly due to the interest which the conscious mind brings to bear on him, the inevitable concomitant being. As we have seen, the gradual civilizing, i.e. the assimilation, of a primitive demonic figure who was originally autonomous and even capable of causing possession. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Jung is most definitely referring to the idea of the doppelganger, the human double, the aramonic double, as I had said here. So that is an affirmation of that. Uh, so let's continue on here, though. To supplement the causal approach by a final one, therefore enables us to arrive at a more powerful or a more meaningful interpretation, not only in medical psychology, where we are concerned with individual fantasies originating in the unconscious, but also in the case of collective fantasies, that is, myths and fairy tales. And I'm going to pause again there, folks. Myths and fairy tales are hugely important myths more so, but fairy tales also have their rightful place as being important to understand. And I think I may take a run at fairy tales one of these days because this is something that's often overlooked. Things like children's stories and fairy tales and stuff like that, there are so many occult connotations and stuff attached to it and archetypal themes throughout them. They're hugely influential on the human mind and are an important programming template for those who seek to control us in this world. But let's go ahead and continue on here. As Raiden points out, the civilizing process begins within the framework of the trickster cycle itself, and this is a clear indication that the original state has been overcome. At any rate, the marks of deepest unconsciousness fall away from him. Instead of acting in a brutal, savage, stupid, and senseless fashion, the trickster's behavior towards the end of the cycle becomes quite useful and sensible. The devaluation of his earlier unconsciousness is apparent even in the myth, and one wonders what has happened to his evil qualities. The naive reader may imagine that when the dark aspects disappear, they are no longer there in reality. But that is not the case at all, as experience shows. What actually happens is that the conscious mind is then able to free itself from the fascination of evil and is no longer obliged to live it compulsively. The darkness and the evil have not gone up in smoke. They have merely withdrawn into the unconscious owing to loss of energy, where they remain unconscious so long as all is well with the conscious. 
But if the conscious should find itself in a critical or doubtful situation, then it soon becomes apparent that the shadow has not dissolved into nothing, but is only waiting for a favorable opportunity to reappear as a projection upon one's neighbor. If this trick is successful, then immediately there is created between them that world of primordial darkness where everything that is characteristic of the trickster can happen, even on the highest plane of civilization. The best examples of these monkey tricks, as popular speech aptly and truthfully sums up this state of affairs, in which everything goes wrong and nothing intelligent happens except by mistake at the last moment, are naturally to be found in politics. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Monkey tricks? Monkey pox, anyone? That one backfired on them, didn't it? You see what they're trying to do here, and it says here this world of primordial darkness where everything's characteristic of the trickster can happen, and it creates this projection upon one's neighbor. So this is exactly what's going on. They want us to project on one another this shadow-type archetype, this idea, this distrust of one another, rather than, you know, the political structure that's pushing us in this direction. These dark occultists at the top that are pushing us in this direction are making manifest this clown world in which we're living. You see, they, they've, they've created this rift in society, in the, the minds of the masses. We have this just absolute clown show going on, don't we? And everybody is kind of in agreement with this. It's like all the worst possible things are being pushed as policy right now for most of the people. But yet people are still like ignorant enough to let this go on. They're, they're still complacent enough to let this go on. To not speak up against it, speak out against it. They're just letting it happen. We're seeing full stream ahead with the clown world motif here. And it's, it's taken form, folks. It was set in motion January 6th, 2021, and now we're in full swing clown world. So, you see, <laughs> naturally to be found in politics, right? As Young just said there, let's continue on, because there's more. There's more. The so-called civilized man has forgotten the trickster. He remembers him only figuratively and metaphorically when irritated by his own ineptitude. He speaks of fate playing tricks on him or of things being bewitched. He never suspects that his own hidden and apparently harmless shadow has qualities whose dangerousness exceeds his wildest dreams. As soon as people get together in masses and submerge the individual, the shadow is mobilized and as history shows may even be personified and incarnated. What happened on the grounds of the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, everyone? Well, this is what happened. The shadow mobilized and personified and incarnated there. And it wasn't the intention of the people gathering there. It was just this whole situation, the leading up to it, and this whole idea of this grassroots organized march on Washington, this protest, or whatever it was supposed to be that day, how it quickly became dominated by this dark 
type of an agenda which took over and was pushed forward and I, I will still I will still say that to my eyes it looked like a lot of this was staged but why was it staged well it was imparting this idea of the trickster into the mix here the shadow archetype you see so let's continue reading and see what else Jung says here. This is all very prophetic, by the way, in Jung's book here that he wrote. Well, this wasn't his book. This was the a, a contribution he made to this book. All right. So anyway, let's continue reading. The disastrous idea that everything comes to the human soul from outside and that is born a tabula rasa is responsible for the erroneous belief that under normal circumstances the individual is in perfect order. He then looks to the state for salvation and makes society pay for his inefficiency. He thinks the meaning of existence would be discovered if food and clothing were delivered to him gratis on his own doorstep or if everybody possessed an automobile. Such are the puerilities that rise up in place of an unconscious shadow and keep it unconscious. As a result of these prejudices, the individual feels totally dependent on his environment and loses all capacity for introspection. In this way, he co his code of ethics is replaced by a knowledge of what is permitted or forbidden or ordered. How under these circumstances can one expect a soldier to subject an order received from a superior to ethical scrutiny? It still hasn't occurred to him that he might be capable of spontaneous ethical impulses and of performing them, even when no one is looking. From this point of view, we can see why the myth of the trickster was preserved and developed. Like many other myths, it was supposed to have a therapeutic effect. It holds the earlier low intellectual and moral level before the eyes of the more highly developed individual so that he shall not forget how things looked yesterday. We like to imagine that something which we do not understand does not help us in any way. But that is not always so. Seldom does a man understand with his head alone, least of all when he is primitive. Because of its numinosity, the myth has a direct effect on the unconscious, no matter whether it is understood or not. I'm going to repeat that sentence, folks, because this speaks to all archetypes. Because of its numinosity, the myth has a direct effect on the unconscious, no matter whether it is understood or not. Remember that. That is the importance of myth. That is the importance of archetype here in the modern age. It affects the human mind, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. It definitely will affect you. The fact that its repeated telling has not long since become obsolete can, I believe, be explained by its usefulness. The explanation is rather difficult because two contrary tendencies are at work. The desire, on the one hand, to get out of the earlier condition, and on the other hand, not to forget it. Apparently, Raiden has also felt this difficulty, for he says, quote, Viewed psychologically, it might be contended that the history of civilization is largely the account of the attempts of man to forget his transformation from an animal into a human being, end quote. 
A few pages further on, he says, with reference to the Golden Age, quote, so stubborn a refusal to forget is not an accident, end quote. And it is also no accident that we are forced to contradict ourselves as soon as we try to formulate man's paradoxical attitude to myth. Even the most enlightened of us will set up a Christmas tree for his children without having the least idea what this custom means as and is invariably disposed to nip any attempt at interpretation in the bud. It is really astonishing to see how many so-called superstitions are rampant nowadays in town and country alike. But if one took hold of the individual and asked him loudly and clearly, do you believe in ghosts, in witches, in spells, and magic, he would deny it indignantly. It is a hundred to one he has never heard of these things and thinks it all rubbish. But in secret, he is all for it, just like a jungle dweller. The public knows very little of these things anyway, and is convinced that superstition has long been stamped out in our enlightened society, and that it is part of our general education to pretend never to have heard of such things. It is just not done to believe in them. But nothing is ever lost, not even the blood pact with the devil. Outwardly it is forgotten, but inwardly not at all. We act like the natives on southern slopes of Mount Elgin, one of whom accompanied me part of the way into the bush. At a fork in the path we came upon a brand new ghost trap, beautifully got up like a little hut, near the cave where he lived with his family. I asked him if he made it. He denied it with all the signs of extreme agitation, and told us that only children would make such a juju, whereupon he gave the hut a kick and the whole thing fell to pieces. This is exactly the reaction we can observe today in Europe. Outwardly, people are more or less civilized, but inwardly, they are still primitives. Something in man is profoundly disinclined to give up his beginnings, and something else believes it has long since got beyond all that. This contradiction was once brought home to me in the most drastic manner when watching a strudel, a sort of local witch doctor, taking the spell off a stable. The stable was situated immediately beside the Gothard line, and several international expresses sped past during the ceremony. Their occupants would hardly have suspected that a primitive ritual was being performed a few yards away. The conflict between the two dimensions of consciousness is simply an expression of the polaristic structure of the psyche, which, like any other energetic system, is dependent on the tension of opposites. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Remember that. Like any energetic system is dependent on the tension of opposites. That is also why there are no general psychological propositions which could not just as well be reserved. Indeed, their reversibility proves their validity. We should never forget that in any psychological discussion we are not saying anything about the psyche, but that the psyche is always speaking about itself. It is no use thinking we can ever get beyond the psyche by means of the mind, even though the mind asserts that it is not dependent on the psyche. How could it prove that? We can say, if we like, that one statement comes from the psyche, is psychic and nothing but psychic, and that another comes from the mind, is spiritual and therefore superior to the psychic one. Both are mere assertions based on the postulates of belief. The fact is, 
that this old trichotomous hierarchy of psychic contents, hylic, psychic, and pneumatic, represents the polaristic structure of the psyche, which is the only immediate object of experience. The unity of the psyche's nature lies in the middle, just as the living unity of the waterfall appears in the dynamic connection of above and below. So, too, the living effect of the myth is experienced when a higher consciousness, rejoicing in its freedom and independence, is confronted by the autonomy of a mythological figure and yet cannot flee from its fascination, but must pay tribute to the overwhelming impression. The figure works because, secretly, it participates in the observer's psyche and appears as its reflection, though it is not recognized as such. It is split off from his consciousness and consequently behaves like an autonomous personality. The trickster is a collective shadow figure, an epitome of all the inferior traits of character in individuals, and since the individual shadow is never absent as a component of personality, the collective figure can construct itself out of it continually. Not always, of course, as a mythological figure, but in consequence of the increasing repression and neglect of the original mythologems as a corresponding projection on other social groups and nations. So, folks, the trickster is a collective shadow figure, an epitome of all the inferior traits of character in individuals. There you go. There you go. Not always a mythological figure, he says here. But we see this and reflects in the greater culture. Because it's something that's represented in each of us as an individual. But the trickster archetype itself manifests in a phenomenological way in the group mind. Because it's a common archetype amongst all of us we recognize it and it can manifest in a myriad of different ways and it's being leveraged right now by those dark occultists who run things at the top of the power structure and we've been plunged full force into clown world the representation of the manifestation of this archetype the trickster archetype the zeitgeist the trickster zeitgeist in our mists clown world here we are 2023 two years into clown world boy look at the circus that the world's become folks <laughs> in a very short time we were getting there with the with the beginnings of the events that took place starting march 13th 2020 it led us invariably down this trail to clown world to the invoking of the archetype, into the zeitgeist here, the trickster. Boy, we were tricked, weren't we? As a culture, as, as under, you know, the auspices of mass psychology, not on the individual basis. There were many of us who understood what was going on with all of the things that occurred in 2020. During that whole scamdemic situation, we understood what it was from then. But still, the bulk of the masses bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And because of their buying into it, our whole culture has been influenced 
by this idea, by this manifestation of the energetic principle invoked there. And it was brought full circle into fruition, into the clown world aspect, when the election had occurred and there was all the controversy over the election and we were about to have Joe Biden <laughs> put into the presidency in January 2021 and this event took place January 6th 2021 and this whole thing was a ritual invoking this archetype inviting this zeitgeist, this trickster zeitgeist, into the world here. And they put the clowns in charge. We have the Feast of Fools still in full swing within the walls of government. It's a mockery, folks. You see these people at the top of the power structure, these ones that really pull the strings and run things, these dark occultists that run this place, they are giving us what they think we deserve. And in so doing, they're greasing the skids for the bringing in of their new world order that they want. And all the things associated with it, and they've leveraged on this trickster archetype to get us there. There's so many things that tie together with this. And of course, I would be remiss to not mention the Pan archetype inherent in this as well, because Pan was also a type of the trickster and I've written a whole book discussing that topic. So I would be remiss to not mention that here. So we're seeing the rollout of this thing going on full swing here. So, you know, I hope I made the whole trope that is the meme of clown world a little bit more clear for you. When we're speaking of it, we're not speaking in terms of, you know, just a silly internet meme or some such thing as people would think of it. They just think it's a joke, right? That there's nothing to it. Well, there's a whole power dynamic at play here, and it truly is a meme in the truest sense. People forget, or maybe they never really knew what a meme really is before the rise of the internet and the popularity of the internet meme became a thing. The alchemical meme is what's been played here. It's affecting the group consciousness of mankind on a very large level. And it's ushered in this new zeitgeist, this trickster zeitgeist that we are living through right now. So here we are in the auspices of clown world, quite literally, folks. And these dark occultists at the top of the power structure sit back and laugh as people eat this stuff up day in and day out. Oh, I identify as this and that, and, you know, LGBTQ this, and uh, make sure you use my right pronouns, and all of these nonsensical things that go on in our world that were never concerns in times past, that were would actually, if you were to mention these kind of things back in the 1980s or 90s, you would be laughed out of town. They, they would think, yeah, that's, that's, that's stupid. That's nonsensical. There's no reasoning behind that. I, I can't see how people would logically get behind some kind of ideology like that. Well, here we are, folks. And it's it's not so much that maybe some of these things exist or happen in the natural world, because they do to a certain degree, but not at the level that they are now. And the acceptance of these things and many of the silly uh, types of 
different ways in which they've tried to transform culture and the language of culture around these things to be inclusive and diverse and to accept these things as the absolute state of everything and being the of the utmost importance it's all ridiculous and it's all part and parcel of the symptoms of the onset of the clown world here and here we are so i hope this was illuminating for you tonight i hope that uh, you garnered some meaning from this and could truly understand what's been done here and why i've spent about four or five programs now harping on the ideas of the occult connotations of this whole january 6th debacle that went down because you see it's affected our culture on a massive level and introduced a new zeitgeist a new spirit of the time into being here and we're living through it and it's not always easy or pleasant is it we've had to adjust our lifestyles in many ways over the course of the past couple of years and especially now we're beginning to feel the pinch of clown world and it's not so pleasant a trick is it that the tricksters played on us so at any rate i hope you found value in tonight's episode i want to thank you all for tuning in that's all i've got for tonight we'll catch you next time have a good night now come with me Today